way back when I first started coaching, I was always big on the speed component. It just made sense to me. If I want someone to be faster, they have to sprint. So I was always a sprint guy and I was always a low dose sprint guy way back. I just, it made sense to me individually as an athlete. I played at a college level and I coached many athletes at high levels and even lower levels. When I had dosage that was fairly low and we hit maximal speeds often, even if it's just acceleration or, or short max velocity, we got better. Welcome to the Business of Speed podcast with Nick Bratton and Steve Brownstein. From their 25 years of experience in business and training, Nick and Steve will bring you insight, research, and industry thought leaders on all matters of business, leadership, and training. This show will help all professionals improve the growth of their business, coaching knowledge, and leadership ability. As coaches and leaders, you are asked to wear many hats. Let them help you manage this balancing act with the Business of Speed Welcome podcast. to another episode of the Business of Speed podcast with Steve Bridenstine and Nick Bratton. We're changing up the format today. Uh, beyond excited, we have a guest who's joining us who's been in the industry for a little while now. Uh, maybe maybe 20-ish, 30 years. We're around that category, I think, at this point. Uh, Lee Taft, the speed guy. I mean, the godfather of speed. He's done it all. Um, if you're not already aware of him, you need to kind of take a look, Google anything, and you're going to find his products, uh, his speaking at different clinics, vlogs, vlogs, a uh, huge amount of YouTube content for free for coaches. Uh, but Nick and I are super stoked to have him on today. Uh, fits so well with what we're always talking about. Speed development, navigating, being entrepreneurs, and creating a business out of speed and coaching and becoming a leader to athletes, other coaches. And Lee has done it all. Uh, so with that being said, Lee, thanks so much for being a part of this today. Oh, guys, thank you so much, Steve and Nick. I appreciate it. I've been anxious to do this. And uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing, making awareness of this. So yeah, this will be a fun, fun conversation. Yeah, for sure. And I, I didn't say that Lee has been hosting, was it two different podcasts now? You have a tennis, yeah. podcast, then you have the Lee Taft podcast. How's that been going for you? Very well. Good. It's, uh, you know, we, you know, and you guys know this too, you get so busy sometimes with other things going on. But what I was able to do was uh, take my tennis connections and the people in the tennis industry and spend a little bit of time with them. And the Taft Performance Podcast, I kind of, you know, I ran that for, you know, a long time. And then I kind of, you know, took a, let that take a backseat for a minute. Now I just go back and forth. Each week we do one or the other and and, uh, you know, because we hit different populations of people. So, but they're both doing very well. Thank you. I, lo I love it. Now, with that being, I'm glad you touched on that part, because we wanted to talk about the evolution of Lee Taft speed, Lee Taft performance. In the past, I know Nick and I both have talked about, we were heavily influenced in your early kind of writings, videos, heavily influencing basketball, a um, little bit more of the, the change of direction. That's what always spoke to us was you were the agility guy. And, but we knew that you knew how to do linear speed as well. Like you can't do one without the other, essentially. If you're a speed guy, you know both. And now it's kind yeah. of taken this full move over. Like you're creating such great tennis content. It took you in a different area of the country. Can you touch on just a little bit of what were the, some of those big foundational movements that kind of took you from where you were at maybe 15, 20 years ago to where you're at now? Some of those big stops along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, so the kind of my, the concepts that I really endorse now, and I've been teaching for this multi-directional speed and, and whether it's dealing in the tennis population or just in basketball or in any sport, whatever it is, started in the 80s. So uh, 1989 was when I really first started kind of coaching and training. And that was when I, uh, you know, I became a phys ed teacher, but I also did training on the side even back then. And and so over, you know, 30 plus years of doing it, what I, what I figured out is if we, if we pay attention to human movement and keep our mouths quiet and just watch, you know, just, just watch, 
you'll be amazed at what the central nervous system is saying to us and, and the, the clues that it's dropping. So when you watch an athlete move and all of a sudden they do a quick repositioning step or they change direction and you just see it time and time again, what that did was that allowed me to create an entire philosophy of coaching. It allowed me to create many concepts of movement and put into different models of how I teach the various, I have seven movement patterns that we teach from and these are all speed-based. And so everything falls from those seven movement patterns, but the concepts within those patterns are really what make the difference, you know, and how we want to approach them. So, um, so from back in my earlier years of coaching to now, especially the reason we moved to Florida is because we're just getting older and got, got afraid of being cold. So that's why that's the real, the real secret right there. But I started in 1991, I was at Boletary's Tennis Academy, which most people know now as IMG. Well, when I was there, it was, it was Boletary's and then IMG came, came in later in that year. Um, and so ever since that time, I've always wanted to impact tennis graders. So I've worked a lot with tennis players over the years. Um, I was at another tennis academy for a while. And so what I was able to do when we moved back down here is be able to kind of impact in an area, which we just talked about speed, that nobody else did. I kept waiting over these, you know, three decades, like, is someone going to actually grab on to tennis and, and, and teach the movements the right way? And nobody really did. I just don't know if it wasn't a passion or there. So we got down here and that was the first thing I wanted to do because I love tennis anyway, was say, you know, what, let's give coaches an actual teaching model and systems that they can follow and then plug in when they're coaching their players. So that's kind of how everything kind of evolved. It was way back in the eighties when I was a college athlete, I started studying speed and, and how we moved. And then as I got older, I just started to connect the dots. I, love it. I know one of the things with the tennis athletes that we train up here, it seems like the coaches often refer to what we do as fitness. And so it gets kind of lost as far as like, what are we actually doing as coaches with these athletes? Because the coaches of the actual sport are just kind of looking, are they in shape? Are they tired? And they, maybe that's, they're disconnected from what actually is helping them improve their, their movement on the court. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And, and to speak to that, kind of a little business nugget, when you use a appropriate words and create a niche for yourself or niche, however you want to say it, you create a better understanding of what you do. So we all work in the fitness industry, that's the, that's the umbrella. We're in fitness. Some of us are strength coaches. Some of us might be aerobic teachers, right? Step aerobics. Some of us might be group class instructors. Some might be speed coaches or whatever. So early on, I got kind of coined. Somebody, I remember somebody wrote it or said it, the speed guy. I was smart enough to jump on that and say, you know what? I'm going to ride that because that's what they know me as. I do everything else. I do strength and all the other stuff, but I got known for that. So that afforded me to do very well in this profession because I stuck with a niche. So if I say to a tennis coach, you know, maybe it's a guy who's taught tennis or a woman for 30 years and I try to introduce myself and I say, yeah, I'm in the fitness industry. That gives them a little different view. But if I say, hey, I specifically work on on-court tennis speed and movement, that automatically separates me from other people in the fitness industry. So that's an important point that especially young trainers trying to carve out a niche, you need to have something that titles you appropriately. Now, Lee, you were kind of talking uh, about the seven movements that you uh, build your program off of. So how do you go about when you're working with an athlete for the first time, how do you go about uh, beginning to implement and incorporate those? Are those seven things that you're doing uh, right off the bat or you're, you're taking them one at a time? Yeah, for the most part, I, when I, if I initially see someone or even a team, I want to just get an overall view of how they move, right? So the seven patterns, the first one is acceleration, linear. 
So we got two linear patterns. We got max velocity and linear acceleration. The second two are lateral. So we get the shuffle and then we got the lateral run step. So that's four. And then we go to two backpedal movements. One of them is pure backpedal from both a, um, uh, what we call an extended backpedal, taller. And the other one is compact, which you might see in like a cornerback in football. And then the, the other one is what we call a hip turn. So I'm starting out facing in the opposite direction that I'm gonna go, but eventually I open my hips and I move in that way, but that falls into the retreating skills as well. And then the last one is jumping. So all those seven patterns, we need to teach the foundation. So I just wanna see people that I assess do the basics, right? A basic jumping landing, just real simple. Just show me how you, I don't care how high, I don't care. Just jump, land, I wanna see it. Uh, acceleration, we just give them a small little push off, let them go a little bit. Max velocity, I don't typically sprint somebody right off unless I know they've had training in it because I don't want someone to pull a muscle if they have not sprinted over you know, 20 meters. So we can do form running drills and that tells me a lot. Or I can do a skipping pattern that tells me their vertical ability to strike the ground. And then same with all the other patterns. We let them shuffle, lateral run, do the hip turn, back pedal. And I just get an overall view. Like if it looks really, really clean, I'm like, good, no problem. Let's go ahead and let's start out what we're going to do. But if they really struggle with some of it, then it at least lets me know I have to be aware when I start instructing that new skill. Mm -hmm. So how would you say that, that you go about working on those seven movements uh, and on a weekly basis? You know, is that something that each day has its, its own skill that you're working on or are you blending some of those together on a daily basis? Yeah, so you definitely will be blending them. But for the most part, I try to hit all seven in a workout, but not as the primary skill. For example, my warm up, I will hit all of the six patterns, the seventh being the one that I'm actually going to train. So in the warm up, I can get a couple jump and landings in, I can get some shuffles and lateral runs and back pedals that you know takes me eight minutes to get a nice warm up in moving. But I'm going to specifically focus on usually one pattern a day. If I want to couple two together, like I could do something like a shuffle and immediately accelerate, you know, or I could do a shuffle into a lateral run. So I can couple them together. But the, the trick to coaching is making sure that by the end of the session, there is improvement. So if I were to train all seven patterns in one session, I'm probably not going to be very good at any of them. But if I focus on one and I really identify the different aspects of that one drill and I just keep, we just keep drilling it and keep drilling it. And I can have multiple different drills within that one skill, but I'm gonna make sure at the end of the practice that athlete walks out saying, you know, I'm a lot better at that today, or at least I really understand it better versus having this watered down session where nothing really got accomplished. We just got a good sweat going and we walked out of there with not an understanding of what I have to do to get better. And then the next session, we attack another one and I can review the one I just did so that we have a little bit of retention. And Lee, with that, are you incorporating any sort of timing components to that? Because I know we're gonna to touch on this in a second, but the, the hugest swing that I've seen in the last couple of years is that everyone's timing everything, you know, like everyone has numbers that they're sharing about everything. And no matter what side of the fence you're on, on that, it is being done. How are you incorporating timing into any of these? So for example, I have a jump map. So if I'm doing vertical, I can give them quick numbers. And I do that as a readiness thing a lot of times. And I do it as a, um, you know, just an incentive. So if I say to them, hey, we're going to get um, vertical jumps in today. I'm not going to tell you how many because I don't know yet until you show me your numbers dropping off. So if I say we're going to do eight and the athlete gets, you know, 26, 26, 5, 26, 5, 23, 9, 23, 8, 
all right, we're done. Okay, so that's that's when I know to stop. So it's real easy. I'm working on the skill. I tell them, don't you worry about the numbers. That's my job. You worry about effort, intensity, and your and being cognizant of technique. In terms of speed, I do time things um, only for the same reason. I'm trying to give them landmarks and I'm trying to give them intensities. Um, but even though you didn't ask this question, I'll, I'll make a point because I get asked this a lot. People want to see standards. Well, how do you do? You compare them to others? I said, no, I I don't care what somebody else does because that athlete, whatever athlete A ran, that's them. That's their genetics. I don't. That's what they're going to do. I can't take my athlete and compare them to that athlete. I have to improve them. People will say, yeah, but if they if they play in this part of the field, if they're in playing in soccer and they're a forward and the average speed of most is this, we have to know that. I'm like, well, I get that. But still, my athlete has to be trained for themselves. I can't change their numbers if they don't have that potential. I can just improve them. So so I just use it as an incentive and as a readiness or, or it's time to quit, you know, it's time to stop because your numbers are dropping. So yeah, that's pretty much what I use them for. And I, I, what I was touching on just a second ago is that big pendulum that Nick and I always talk about with the shifts in the, the strength and conditioning industry from no speed, all strength to tons of conditioning to speed. It feels like every week when Nick and I talk, there's just more and more posts, especially after Alabama won the national championship that now everyone's gonna jump on this. We're, we're essentially feeding the cats. We're gonna do minimum dosing, microdosing. Over, now you have 30 years, usually in that time period, you might see some of those swings go back and forth as the pendulum goes. What, have you seen this before? And like, what other kind of trends have you seen kind of come and go in that time period? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, the, the fun part for me, is way back when I first started coaching, I was always big on the speed component. It just made sense to me. If I want someone to be faster, they have to sprint. So I was always a sprint guy and I was always a low dose sprint guy way back. I just, it, it made sense to me individually as an athlete. I played at a college level and I coached many athletes at high levels and even lower levels when I had dosage that was fairly low and we hit maximal speeds often, even if it's just acceleration or, or short max velocity, we got better. And then we moved on. So I was always in that camp for a long time. And then we started to see, um, you know, more people, you know, coming on board and stuff, like you said, recently. And I, that thrilled me because it reduces injury. When I build capacity to manage those types of speeds by, by giving them you know, enough volume throughout a training cycle, and I'm not talking high volume, I'm just talking collectively, weekly getting stuff in, they just get better. You know? and, and that's, I've seen that, again, over three decades, so I had enough time to see that it works. So I was thrilled when I started to see you know, Tony Holler with his Feed the Cats, and then like you said, the Alabama guys who were, you know, at Indiana and then they were, you know, they were actually down at IMG and, and did some stuff. Uh, and they take a more technical measurement, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, measuring, you know, with 1080 and all that stuff, which is great, but not a lot of people have that access. It's just about getting out there and doing it. Now, here's the thing. I have always felt strength is really important. The problem I've always had with a lot of the strength is at the end of the day, it's about performance on the court, the field, the pits, the track, whatever. So if my strength training is benefiting that and we can see that, then great. But I know my speed training will, because if I can get faster, I have the potential to play at a better pace which would be submaximal, but my submaximal pace is faster. So I now have built up better stamina. So everything about it is very, very beneficial. And as you said, trends, some of the things that have changed, one area that was really big 
was that came in was obviously the functional fitness scene, right? So when I first started training, it was very big in bodybuilding, powerlifting, back in the 80s, later 70s, you know, that was the big thing. It was, you know, a lot of iron, you know, and you're lifting a lot and you're trying to gain hypertrophy to be stronger. And then we started to see the movement into this functional fitness and the intent was right. What happened is people thought, well, if I balance on a ball and I hold a kettlebell on my head while I drink water, that's a functional movement, right? And we're like, no, you missed it. You missed it by a month. That's not what we're talking about. Functional just means if, if I have to be able to perform something, can I functionally train that? Now, doing a powerlifting squat, yeah, that's going to benefit me in some way. But if I can do another form of a squat, maybe a step up, you know, because I start at the bottom of a squat and a step up. And now I use a unilateral leg driver to get up. Well, that has some function in sport. Um, so I can, I can use that. So functional training was one of the big ones that came in that, that kind of changed. And then obviously we saw the corrective movement, right? The corrective movement, nobody was training anymore. Nobody was training. It was, it was 58 minutes of correctives and then two minutes of training. And then we, and then we tiled off and went home. And so I think now we're starting to get back into just, you, you got to do it all, right? You got to get strong. You got to get mobile. You got to get fast. And we have to just program it correct, you know, in a correct manner. So Lee, with that in mind, um, you know, we tend to, uh, we as coaches tend to get excited. And, and when we see that, that new toy or that new way of training, uh, we want to jump on that and do as much as possible. Um, it, do you see kind of a downside to this? You know, we, we all have just a certain amount of time that we can see our athletes each week, no matter what sector you're in. So as we begin to incorporate more speed training, as we begin to incorporate more of this movement work, do you feel like something else may get neglected? Or, or again, there could be a downside to incorporating more and more of this in our training? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So so the, the, the main thing is this is where I think coaching in general okay so what we do we coach okay i don't care if you're a group instructor or one-on-one or you know whatever or a basketball coach we all coach we we instruct if we identify and we do like a needs analysis and we do whatever evaluation we need to do and we start giving exercises based on need and outcome then that avoids us from getting the you know, the shiny object, you know, excitement. My philosophy has always been when something new comes out, a new research, somebody wrote a book on something that we haven't talked about for a while. I like to go at least four weeks, if not up to six of trying it behind closed doors. Let me try it. Let me do it. Maybe with a couple of athletes that I could, that are good at doing that. Or let me do it myself. And let's just see, what is it? What's the actual outcome before I'm going to take my philosophy that I've worked really hard to de develop and tip it over because somebody wrote a book that has a really good title to it, you know? So I think that's really important. The, the, the more confident you become in your philosophy of what works in regular training uh, based on concepts and principles that can be applied, the better coach you can become. And then I can look at a new uh, fad or a new something that's good, something that's really impactful, but I can look at it, put some perspective on it and say, that might be good, but you know what? I'm going to give it its due time. And if I feel it can come in and slide into my program to help my athletes and maybe move something out, I'll do that. But we have to make sure we build foundational philosophies and things we believe in first before we start looking at everything that's new under the sun. Sure, sure. Uh, now, Lee, one of the things that, that we like to talk about uh, here on the podcast is, is the business side to this. Uh, and, and that doesn't matter what sector you're in, whether you're in um, the public in a high school or college or even in the private sector. You know, we all have some, some level of business that we have to deal with. You know, one of the things that I've always found interesting about you and, and your path is just um, how you've done it. 
you know, you, you talked about being at the tennis academy early on, and then uh, you moved to Indiana and, and you were doing a number of things there. Uh, I know you and I have spoken in the past about you were uh, in a physical facility for a little while, then you've done uh, a number of things online. You've done some things at your own home before. Now you're back down in Florida. Um, and too often, I feel like young coaches feel like there's only one way that we can do this, that, that you have to do your internship, take a position, then go out and do your own thing. And it has to be this physical location. Um, and so, you know, what are your thoughts on just how we develop our career and, and how we take that next step? And um, also how we recognize what that next step may need to be, you know, again, thinking for ourselves and not necessarily allowing others to, to think for us. You know, what, what are kind of your thoughts on, on that career development piece? That's a great question, Nick. I, I really appreciate you asking that because so over the years, I've owned five facilities. I, uh, 1994 was the first Speed Academy I opened up in New York. And um, over that time, I've had, you know, two or three others in New York. And then I had uh, in Indiana, I had a couple different places. And they, they fit a need. Like, I, I, think, I think you've got you've to do a uh, kind of a self-evaluation. What do I want? Like, what do I want to really accomplish? Who do I want to impact? If I, can, if I can answer that question, it tells me, I might need a facility. Maybe I need to rent space in a facility. Maybe I need to work in a facility, or maybe if I can find a warehouse off the beaten path that's not too expensive, I can rent some space out of there. Um, because when I when I first started out, I was one of the first guys in the Northern New York area that was actually training groups. I always, from day one, I went right with groups because it made sense to me. I was a teacher, I was a phys ed teacher and a coach. So groups didn't scare me, like it scares a lot of people who've never been in that environment. So that was really comfortable for me. The other thing that it was good for is I could charge a really limited amount, but make a really good amount per hour. So if I did 10 to 12 athletes, you know, in that, in that hour session, that were paying, you know, way back then they were paying 10 bucks a session. But if I had 12, that's 120 bucks an hour. Well, back in 1994, 120 bucks an hour was a pretty good, pretty good slice of income, you know, for, for that time. And so you have to look at it and say, what do I want to accomplish? As I've gotten older now, I'm very selective with who I work with because I do so much consulting right before COVID hit. The last three years prior to that, I was traveling about 40 times a year. And so I was in you know, Asia and Europe and North America, and I was all over the place. And then, of course, all over the country working with different teams and programs and facilities. Well, so my need to have a facility was very limited. I didn't need that. So my garage became my training facility. So I could still work with athletes there. I could still do my videos and stuff like that that I wanted to do and I didn't have to pay rent. So that made more sense to me. So if I'm a young guy coming out, I'm gonna say, you know, really, what do I wanna do? What do I wanna impact? Do I wanna be a college or a pro guy? Like I wanna work with it. Well, if I do, then I gotta do the volunteering, the internships and work my way up the ladder there. But if you just wanna impact athletes, Okay, there's a multitude of ways to do that. Camps and clinics is a great way to do it because you can get a lot of athletes and impact them very well. Or you can find a facility, maybe a sports complex that's doing stuff and maybe you can rent a little space and train a bunch of different athletes there. So it really comes down to what do I want? Where do I want to be? And that's what I've done. That's how I've, I've gone from being in a really small facility to a, a small garage to a 6,000 square foot place by myself that I had to doing camps with 103 athletes by myself um, on a weekend to, you know, traveling around the world consulting. So that, that's what I wanted to do as I got older. Yeah, sure. Sure. Now, um, 
you know, I, again, we, I've seen kind of your evolution over the years. And uh, one of the things that, that I've been seeing lately, you, you know, obviously you have the, the tennis academy stuff that's going on, uh, but I'm also seeing some things for coaches and camp development and group development and, and putting those things together. Um, so what, what has really prompted this for you? And, um, you know, why, why do you feel like coaches should be getting involved in this and, and doing more of these things? How, how is it beneficial for them? Yeah. Um, so it, again, it always comes down to a need. So when for, I would say I've done over 350 camps and clinics and workshops in my life. I, I, I do them a lot. And I still, even now we moved to Florida. I've made some connections. I got several places that want me to do things with them once we can. Um, it has provided, uh, you know, very good financial freedoms for us. It's allowed us to do a lot. So what happened over the last several years, you know, probably 10, 15 years, we get a lot of questions. Like, how do you do that? How do you do the camps, clinics and all that? So I have a lot of different models that I use based on who I'm trying to impact. That's the type of camp or clinic I'll use. So um, what we did, my wife and I run our business together. So we, we, a few years ago, we said, you know, why don't we do a coaching you know, coaching course. So we developed a coaching course and we just take coaches through where they're at. So it's very much one-on-one. -on -one. We have things that we're going to teach them all, but then everybody's a little different. So we basically just show them if you want to impact athletes and you want to impact a clinic is a great way to do that. One-on-one -on -one is a tough model to grow like, uh, income wise, unless you're in the right area and you're going to do a lot of it. I can go and do, I went, I'll just give this as an example. One of my jumpstart clinics, I had an organization. It was actually a foundation in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hired me. I went in, I did my two hour jumpstart clinic. I coupled it. It's, 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 so it's two hours, but I told the organizers, look at, tell any area coaches, if they want to come, they can come and I'll do a clinic for them afterwards for an hour. So combined, you know, I made just over seven grand for two hours working with athletes. And so what we teach these coaches is look at, you can make, you know, a month's income in a couple hours once you learn how to do it and how to market these. Then that opens up time for you if you want to open a facility or you want to do other types of training. Clinics buy you time. They can buy you time because if I go and knock out one this weekend and I make 2,500 bucks, okay, that's 2,500 bucks. I can use that money to market my other stuff, my facility. So there's just so many benefits to it. And that's what I try to get coaches to understand, especially right now who are struggling with facilities and COVIDs, making them restricted. You can do this online as well. And I have several coaches now starting to do really good really, you know, do, do really well with their income online running camps and clinics. Yeah. Your business model, you almost were ahead of the curve as far as what's going on with COVID right now with how you had already been leveraging so many of these interactions online for the last six, seven years. And so when this hit, I, I'm sure that we all kind of felt it, but did you feel as it was happening, like, okay, I'm going to be able to weather this all right with what I've already put in place? For the most part, we were pretty good. And, uh, but I had, it was funny because February of last year, I was actually, we lived in Indiana, but we, I was down here. I worked with um, the Philadelphia Phillies for two days. And then the next two days I worked with the Braves because they were about an hour and a half away from each other. I went home. I had 16 more engagements where I was going to be traveling. A couple of them out of the country. I never went again. I never, I never left my home until we moved down here in the end of June because of COVID. So when we knew it was coming, and I kind of knew it a little bit earlier because people were telling me back in early February, and, and one guy said, Lee, this is not going to go away. So we quickly pivoted, mm -hmm. and we just turned things online. So even our retreats that we did at our home where we would run these three-day retreats, we did it online. So we were able to keep a lot of stuff going when like I was trying to tell a lot of the coaches I worked with, I'm like, you have to be ready for this. Cause, and they're like, ah, I don't like the online stuff. I'm like, you're not going to have an option. 
if you don't. And unfortunately, a lot of them are closing their facilities and or having to move to another state because they, they're stuck. So yeah, you gotta be ready to pivot real quick. I was, I was curious, Lee, now, one of the things I've talked with some of my young coaches is what you were talking about, the impact you wanna make, what does it look like? Really understanding that as you start kind of putting this plan in place as you're going. And so many of them with the aspirations of working in the pro side or working at the high level college side, have that plan in place already of, I need to intern, I need to do this, I need to do that before I can get those steps. One person I've looked at is kind of bucking that trend a little bit is kind of been Eric Cressy with how he's getting kind of handpicked. Then you have like a Lauren Landau getting handpicked into the Broncos. Can you tell a little bit about like your journey along the way with all these consulting opportunities you've done for all of these teams, regardless of sport, have there been situations where you've been reached out to, to be a little bit more of that head at a specific place and maybe why wasn't that the right fit for you uh, to kind of help some of these younger coaches really understand what that really looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I've, I've had uh, some chances at, at, you know, the college level and, um, you know, probably if I would have pursued it a little bit more, probably at the pro level, if I, if that's where I wanted to go, but I didn't want to. I, back then, I had back when I was in, in, so it was 1991, so I was about 25 years old. I was working with pro tennis players and I traveled with some of them and I went to tournaments and that was not what I really enjoyed. My thing is, and I think this is where some of the younger guys, they want what it appears to be. Like, hey, if I'm working with an NBA team or NFL or I'm working with this pro soccer team or, or whatever, I mean, that's the best. I don't think they realize it's not the best always. It's not always good. Not that they're not good jobs, especially now, um, but you've got to want to do that. And you've got to want to impact those players in the profession. But if you're doing it because it looks good, like – it looks good on your resume or look at me, I'm a pro strength coach. You're going to be disappointed. For me, I always knew I wanted to impact kids that needed to learn how to move better. So when I had chances to work at the highest level, it was a no brainer for me to say no. It was easy because I didn't want that. I wanted my speed academies to impact hundreds and hundreds of kids that were not going to get that kind of exposure. So it's, that's why I said at the beginning, you got to do what really matters to you and don't look at it as, hey, I'm going to be a pro guy. I'm going to be named because I'll tell you, I've got, I've got people that have worked for me that are now in the pros. They like it. They like the job, but they're like, sometimes I wake up in a hotel and I have no idea where I am because we just were in another part of the country and now we're here and we wake up and it's, you know, 3 a.m. I'm showing up and my, you know, my wife hasn't seen me in a week. And so if that's what you want and, and you want to impact those NBA guys that way, then go for that. But if you're just trying to get your name, you know, some extra letters behind your name, you, you got to think twice about that because it's tough. It's a tough business. Yeah, I, I think there's so much truth to that. Um, and, and Lee, you know, you've kind of, hit on this, this point a couple of times on the desire to lead uh, young athletes, um, leading your coaches who have worked with you in the past. Um, you know, is it, we as coaches have, have such a role to play in individuals' lives, uh, whether it's the staff that we have around us, whether it's the athletes that are in front of us, no matter what age they are, um, even the, the family members around them, you know, their siblings, their parents, things like that. So when you think about leading in today's day and age, uh, and, you know, a day and age that technology is all consuming, uh, a day and age where, especially right now, COVID is uh, kind of separating a lot of people and it's, and it's creating uh, a little bit of isolation, um, you know, working with, with young individuals who are just getting into the field and, and they're trying to catapult themselves. What do, you, what do you think is one of the most important things as a leader, one of the most important traits or messages that you can have for those individuals that are around you in order to help them in this time? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple things. Number one, I was always really big on setting up, whether it's my athletes or my coaching staff or my interns or whatever, setting them up for success. 
Okay, so putting them in positions where they can have success, and, and, and I don't mean handing it to them. I just mean putting them in a position where they've got the opportunity to be successful and not putting them in a position where they're probably going to fail. And, and I think failure is a great uh, teacher, but if you put people in a, cha- in, a, in a position where they're going to fail all the time, it's just human nature where it becomes very defeating, okay? So, so that's one thing. Now, how I do that, and I think this is probably one thing, I don't think enough people understand the power of it. And I, and I, I go back to like giving a gift. So if I give a gift to somebody for their birthday or, you know, a holiday or whatever, when you receive a gift, you feel pretty good, right? You like it. It's exciting. But when you give a gift and you see someone's eyes and they light up and you're so excited to see, you know, have them see what you've given them and the impact that's made on them. So one thing that I've always tried to do with my athletes and my coaching staff is to make sure they get the opportunity to teach somebody else and they get an opportunity to impact them and they get the opportunity to lead somebody else. So for example, if I have athletes, once I've set a foundation of how the training is going to look and how we're going to go and everybody's a little bit more comfortable, I do uh, peer teaching a lot. So I'll say, hey guys, all right, Nick, Steve, you guys are together. You're going to be over here on this side of the court. I want you to working on... Um, this fake throw drill, and this is a demonstration. Nick, you're going to spend the first couple of minutes teaching Steve. Make sure he gets this. Hey, make sure you pay attention to his foot plant and this and that. Go. Now, you have a chance to impact him. He's going to feel good from the information you give, but you're going to know that you just impacted someone. And that, that is one of the most powerful ways to get kids who struggle with depression and feeling low in self-confidence being told you're good is is nice telling somebody else they're great is powerful okay so when you get to impact them that's really important so now with my coaches we do the same thing i put my coaches in a situation like my interns used to be nervous with this but they eventually got it is i would make them teach us you know teach us and help us and i said you can't be wrong You're not going to be wrong. I might have an easier strategy than you to get to where you want to go. And I'll show you that if I need to, but you're not going to be wrong. You're just going to come at a different way. And what it did is it gave them empowerment and empowerment is an incredible way to help our young people learn how to become um, more impactful. And really that's at the end of the day, how do we impact athletes? How do we impact our adult clients or our coaching staff? I love that. Now with, with that, it's kind of like you're creating a, a phenomenal experience for yeah. your staff or your athletes. And I know in the, the private side, especially Nick and I talk about that experience you're intentionally creating. And that is one thing that I was just talking with one of my coaches just yesterday about was he was watching me. He was on my hip and he's like, well, why did you do that? And I was like, cause they needed to have a little fun right there. And he's like, so you did that on purpose? And I was like, yeah, they kind of started it, but then I pushed it further because they're having fun. It was trying to hit a sign on the wall with their opposite hand throwing a tennis ball. And they were all dead with energy. And one tried to do it. And I was like, oh, everybody line up. We're going to all do it. And he was like, oh, man, it just seemed like it was a fun thing. But I was like, no, the experience was really important. And so he was asking me just like the intentionality of behind creating experiences. How do you kind of fit that in with that leadership component of like, how is this going to feel each and every time? Yeah. So it's so a perfect example is you read the room, right? You read the room. You're like, all right, we're, we're the, you know, the air is going out of the balloon really fast here. We got to do something to get it going. So it's, it's, and that sometimes comes with experience because a young coach is going to look at their lesson plan and they're going to follow it, right? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. My teacher told me, my, my supervisor told me, you know, do the lesson plan. An experienced coach is going to have plan A, plan B, and plan C, right? You're going to go through plan A and say, oh, this is great, good day. But then next week you do the same thing. It's like, right, this just isn't going. The athletes are tired. Maybe it was exam week. And so all of a sudden you go, okay, let's make this competitive today. Let's just do something where we're having some competition. So it's about being able to read the room. It's about letting them know that that's okay. And it's about having, like you said, the intention 
of having a great experience so the athletes stay with you. And what I mean by staying with you is like, you don't lose them. You don't lose them as a, as the leader and as the coach, because all you're doing is doing what the, you know, the program said. And you, you, sometimes you can lose the athletes. They just like, they just start to show up because they have to, oh, you already paid for the sessions. So I'm going to show up. Or if you're a college guy, you're like, oh, my coach, that's my time to train. You got to read the room and you got to, you got to breathe life into lessons into people. And I have many times had athletes show up and this is at my business show up and I could just tell they were tired. I'm like, you know what, just either sit down until your mom comes back. Or if you can call your mom, go home. You're not charged for this session. Just go home and, and rest. You know, and that's just reading them and saying, you know what, that, that's what they needed. They just needed to go home. And they just had, you could tell they were defeated. And I think that just comes with experience, you know, being around people like you guys and myself who've been there and can, can all of a sudden flip the switch like that. I know you mentioned that in a, actually a tweet I saw from you today was about kind of you need to be able to have a plan in place. But at the same time, if you essentially lost that plan one minute before, you should be able to conduct a great session for that client without skipping a beat. And that's the kind of quality intentionality behind your training and have a kind of a system behind that, understanding the experience, the X's and O's, that if you don't have that piece of paper, you can still create a, a phenomenal training experience for your athletes. Yeah. And that's, that's what I used to do at my speed academies. Every about two to three months, I would make my staff or my interns. I said, you're not allowed to look at anything today. Just, just go out there. I said, I'll have an overview of what you're doing. So it's documented. And I'm big on documentation because coming in the world of coaching and physical education, and depending on where you live, parents sometimes are very litigious and you could be sued for their kid getting hurt. So having documentation is important. But what I wanted them to do is I said, just go out there and get a feel for the lesson. And this is what it did, Steve and Nick. And this is important for the young people to understand. When you're young and new, your bandwidth is really small. You, you're like your comfort zone. You're probably going to fall somewhere in where you like to train personally. So if like you're doing weightlifting with the athletes and, and lifting weights, you're probably going to do, if you don't have something in front of you and you can't remember what you're, you're going to go, well, this is what I like to do. So that's what I'm going to have them do. But the more experience you get in the bigger toolbox, now you can think off the top of your head. Like if I saw Steve running and your arm action was really bad and Nick was jumping and his back was rounding when he landed, well, I can have six, seven, eight strategies in my head to fix those. But if I'm a beginner, I might have one. You know, I might have one because I just don't know enough yet. So what it did for me when I took their lesson plan away is it forced them to realize I got to expand my toolbox. I got to understand. And that's what it did for them because they thought it was expanding, but they were looking at a sheet. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. But when they had to think off the top of their feet, they're like, uh, I, this is the only drill I know. I'm like, that's why I'm doing this for you. So, yeah. So it was always, they, they, they didn't like it when they had to do it, but they, they appreciated it at the end of it. <laughs> I love that. I think anything that can always challenge young staff and interns like that. And uh, Nick and I were just talking about this with like kind of the onboarding process a little bit of those surprises sometimes for them to get them out of that nice routine that you have to just challenge to see like where they actually are in their coaching right now. And then you can kind of come back in. And I know that's something we talk about with your speed development too, is having those interventions ready to kind of help that athlete. You're not necessarily just doing all these drills and then you now you just perform the task. Well, it's the same as a coach. Like you don't just kind of learn, 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 and now you're just a great coach. It's kind of like, yeah. let's see you coach a little bit. All right, now what do we need to work on again? Let's get it back into it. And as a leader, that's kind of something that you're always trying to do. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and we, what we start to learn as coaches as we get older and we do more is the biggest impact for an athlete is context, right? So – so if I just, if I have an athlete do a, some kind of reactive drill where they're having to read the, read the play or read the movement or read their, you know, the, the other athletes in the class, 
and maybe they're struggling with a couple of movements. Like they just, they're not cutting very sharp or whatever. Now I go and implement a specific corrective cutting drill. I just gave them context. I'm like, well, you just struggled. Now I'm giving you this drill. That's why. And that makes sense to them. But if I start out with this very small, narrow, specific uh, cutting corrective drill, they're kind of like, okay, I'll do it because you told me to do it, but I don't, I don't know why I'm doing that drill. Mm-hmm. But if I flip it and, and put them in a situation where it's just like if you, the three of us played, you know, um, you know, like, uh, you know, rebound, you know, the game of basketball where, you know, you're playing two on one. As we're playing, we're going to figure some stuff out. We're going to find that, hey, you, you know, I don't like to post up. You know, I'm going to jack it up from threes. And I, Steve might not like to go to his left and, you know, whatever. Well, now we can put some context to that when we practice. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the same thing with training. Give them context and then they'll, they'll dive into that drill better. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, Lee, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, I know that you have a number of products out there. And so uh, could you go through some of the things that, that you have out available for uh, young coaches right now, things that um, they can get into, ways that can connect with you? Yeah, I appreciate you guys allowing me to share that. So if they go to LeeTaff.com, they can kind of see what we have, kind of a warehouse of different um, coaching tools there. And one of the exercises or one of the, the products that we have, it's a course, it's called Speed Insiders. And it's a, it's a course that it's 24 modules. And the reason I put it together is the initial purpose was for interns and grad assistants, because I wanted them, this is why this was a perfect talk for that is I wanted them to come out of their internship or their graduate assistantship with more experience on how to coach movement, how to program it, how to, how to plan it, how to work with groups, all those things. And then all the skills that we talked about. And so I put that together for that. Well, what happened is other people started to say, well, is that good for anybody? I said, yeah, actually it better for anybody. And that's how it became a, a pretty good product. So that is probably the one that I think, has the most impact. And then there's smaller ones like a low box or a medicine ball. Those are specifically like correctives. If you're having trouble with change of direction, these impact, one of them impacts the upper body, one impacts the lower body as it relates to change of direction. So yeah. And then if you're in the tennis industry, the certified tennis speed specialist course is one that's very detailed. That's a 17 module thing to teach people on court movement. So yeah, those are, those are fun courses to be involved with. Excellent. And for anyone who uh, wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Yep. They can uh, certainly through LeeTaff.com find us there, but um, I'm on social media. It's pretty much at LeeTaft for any of those. So if they go at LeeTaft, they can message me or Facebook, you know, send me a message there. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty good with getting back to everybody. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know I can speak for myself and I speak for Steve as well. Um, for all of our listeners, I've, I've followed Lee for a long time now. Uh, I continue to use a lot of his work in, in our facility. He had mentioned the hip turns earlier. Uh, we do a lot of his fake throws in our programming. And so um, I've, I've been a huge uh, follower and advocate for what he does. So please check his stuff out. Um, for uh, our listeners, we will be back next week with another show. Um, if you guys want to get in contact with us uh, on Instagram and on Twitter at The Business of Speed. Uh, otherwise, we look forward to uh, bringing you another show next week. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Lee.